Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Jock Sarong. Jock's the author of four novels, including The Rules of Backyard Cricket and the Colin Roderick Award-winning On the Java Ridge. And today, we're discussing his latest historical novel, Preservation. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, where I speak with an Australian writer and together we explore their books, writing, and the literary culture that informs their work. The Great Conversations podcast expands on that discussion and gets behind the scenes of the book, and we explore the pressing issues that it addresses in our world. Now, thank you to everyone who has joined me in these first months of the show. Wherever you are around the world, it has been amazing to have you along and for us to share our love of Australian writing. With the holiday season coming up, perhaps you've got some time for some extra reading, or maybe you've got a mate who's looking for a book. Why not share the Great Conversations podcast with them? They'll get a great new episode every week, and you'll now have a new friend to discuss those favourite books with. Now, on today's show, Preservation explores the true story of the wreck of the merchant vessel Sydney Cove in Bass Strait in 1797. From the wreck, 17 men make it to the mainland at 90 Mile Beach in Victoria, and they have to walk over 700 kilometres to the... Uh, to the you know, only eight-year-old settlement at Port Jackson. Only three men survived the journey, and this tale comes to us for it recorded in the journal of the Scottish merchant William Clark. Now, into the space of this narrative, Jock Sarong delivers a story of survival and treachery that examines the principles on which the colony of New South Wales was founded and the impact that invading attitudes had on the land's indigenous population. So join me, please, as we get into Jock Sarong's preservation. Good morning, this is 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Final Draft, and my name is Andrew Popel. I'm joined on the line from Victoria by Jock Sarong. He's the author of four novels, including The Rules of Backyard Cricket and the Colin Roderick Award-winning On the Java Ridge. Today, he's joining me to discuss his latest preservation. Welcome, Jock. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here, and I was confessing before, the, uh, before we started talking that how much I love this book, so I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. And it's, uh, something about it is the story and what you bring to us in preservation, because preservation explores the true story of the wreck of the merchant vessel Sydney Cove in Bass Strait in 1797. And from the wreck, 17 men make it to the mainland at 90 Mile Beach in Victoria, and they have to walk over 700 kilometres to the incipient settlement at Port Jackson. Only three of the men survived the journey a tale that we, we have today, the tale survived to us, recorded in the journal of the Scottish merchant William Clark. Now, into this space, you deliver a story of survival and treachery that examines not only what these men went through, but the principles on which the colony of New South Wales was founded and the impact that invading attitudes had on the land's indigenous population. Um, and so I want to begin, because I, when I finished reading Preservation, Jock, I did a bit of a Google search for myself. I found references, uh, but one from the ABC uh, last year stuck out that um, noted the epic nature of this story that is still so little known amongst Australians. Now, we've got the primary source information of William Clark's diary, but there would have also been huge talk amongst the colony of the time. These men, these surviving men would have been the talk of the town. You know, this is they didn't have yeah. Netflix to chill out to. So there's also likely to have been some tall retellings. How did you find yourself and your role in occupying the spaces between the record and and other tales of the the survival of um, the Sydney Cove? 
it's a really good observation. I think um, what you want if you're going to take on a historical story is at, at least enough pillars of documented history that there's a bit of a structure there. If the pillars are too, um, too well filled between, then you don't have enough room to move as a storyteller. And equally, if there's no pillars at all that are still standing, then you're simply making up a story. And here it's that very, very nice... Um, paucity of material that gives you lots of room. So I, I think you're right in saying that in Sydney in 1797, that the settlement's, what's that, nine years old, and um, a few things are going on. One is that the Rum Corps are starting to get going. Mm. Um, they've just survived a major famine, and there is an absolute terror of the bush because there are people out there, there are Aboriginal people who are still maintaining a very, very um, strong resistance to settlement and expansion. Um, there's, there's not really a complete understanding of what other dangers the bush might hold. Um, there are fires, there's, there's adverse weather, and people are really clinging to a small cleared area in the bush. And um, that means that when you have three men, these fishermen are... 20 or 40 miles down the coast and they find these three men crawling along the beach and um, they're very badly injured and um, they're in terror of their lives. And, of course, all sorts of stories and fables start growing out of that. Who are these people and, and where have they come from? Um, and once it became clear that they had come from a wreck and that the wreck had the equivalent of 31,000 litres of rum on it, um, people were actually leaving the settlement of Sydney. Convicts were escaping and trying to find this fabled wreck. Um, so, yes, there was, a, there was a small historical record in terms of the diary, but there was also an awful lot of hyperbole going on you know, among the settlement. I'm really interested in this idea of the pillars on which you rest your story and, and the space that they provide, because... Of course, we have um, we have a very established history, but then we also have history not recorded and history untold. Now, your story of the journey north comes to us through three narrators. We have Clark and his cross examination on the diary that was um, the di the diary record from Lieutenant Grayling. Um, your your character who really uh, digs deep into this story. We have Mr. Fig, the supposed tea merchant who gives us his bloody recollections, and we have Srinivas who finally reveals his voice to Grayling's wife. It strikes me that in hearing these three narratives, the reader has something to consider about the foundation and history of Australia, and I'd really like to take each of these, these men in turn. So let's start with William Clark. He's, he's the son of a I'm going to put scare quotes on this respectable family, but strikes out um, as very much of a chancer. And he's, he's launching the Mercandile expedition to New South Wales is painted as sort of a last roll of the dice. His diary, though, gives enormous legitimacy to his words, recorded as they were on the trek. They have an authority. We know how much uh, we, we tend to put faith in, in things that are written down. And here I was really struck by the parallels with so much recent debate around colonial history, history of invasion, and then the traditions and traditional practices that they uh, 
the, the first people arriving on Terra Australis from Europe were met with. It was only actually really, I mean, you, you might have been across this in the last few weeks, we've had a media scrum over inclusion of Indigenous perspectives in the science curriculum and the fact that this knowledge is encoded in an oral tradition and not written down. So what did you see in the character of William Clark and, and the fact that he was the recorder of this story? Yeah, Clark um, was the, I think, the nephew of the founder of this trading company, which was called Campbell and Clark. And if you look, if you sort of pull back and look at where he has found himself at the end of that walk, it's been an enormous um, catastrophe for the company and for him personally. He's lost this extremely valuable cargo. He's lost the ship, um, and he's lost a total of fifty-two men. Um, so he is in disgrace. And what actually happened in Sydney was that once he had recovered from his injuries, which were pretty serious, mm. he um, immediately took off and went back to Calcutta, which is where the voyage had originally come from. Mm. And the diary that we have is not, in fact, his verbatim diary. What it is is a transcript of some kind that was prepared by a newspaper in Calcutta called the Asiatic Mirror. And we don't really know, because the original diary is lost, we don't know to what extent um, he had gilded the lily. Mm. Firstly, in the diary, and secondly, in the retelling of the diary to a journalist. But you would think that he would have set about trying to restore his reputation because the diary, um, you, you can read the full text of it online, and, and it's a very odd thing to read. It doesn't explain what happened to the other 14 men on the walk. Um, it doesn't explain why Clark was speared through both hands. Um, it leaves these, these very fundamental questions unanswered and tries to paint a picture of um, survival and bravery, which would have been true in some respects, but there's no way at all that these three men made it as far as they did without being helped by Aboriginal people. And um, Clark glosses over that. And that was what I thought was an interesting thing to explore in fiction. And we have these sort of competing records where you, you have Clark's diary, which is cross-examined by Lieutenant Grayling, and they are both recorders. You Numerous times throughout the text, you, you have Clark, even with two holes in his hand, trying to record in his diary, and Grayling simil similarly recording so much of the colony, which he, he seeks to do with a, an impartial... I guess, voice, but this, this sense that a voice can ever be impartial in recording. And I, it really got me thinking about the way we learn, you know, you and I, we would have learnt at school probably a much smaller record of um, the, the full sort of invasion and settlement and the role of Indigenous people in, um, in the early colony than, than kids today are. But the way so much of that comes from a European perspective and the the legitimacy given to those those written records. Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely get primacy, don't they, mm. in the way we think about early colonial history. And the other person in the novel who's constantly writing is Governor Hunter. Mm. Um, and each of them is desperately trying to scratch down a record of a civilization, and, and, and they have an incipient sense that they are at the start of a civilization, and they want to be there recording it and recording their role in it. But that means that a lot of um, the ephemeral stuff is lost. And stories like the Sydney Cove Walk are full of that ephemeral stuff. And, mm. and there are other examples like 
if you look at the stories of convicts from Macquarie Harbour, um, everything administrative about their lives was noted in tiny, tiny detail by by the, the authorities. But there was still a lot of, of oral stories and myths and legends that sort of seeped out the edges of that society. And um, for writers, I suppose, and hopefully for readers, that, that's really where the interest is. Mm. So let's move to, to Mr. Fig, um, who is both an invention on the page and an invention of yours. I gather that the, the other, the, the one of the three survivors was a, a shipmate from the original wreck, but yes. Fig's story is a tale of violence and opportunism. And I really don't want to say too much because the unfolding of Fig's character is so central to the tension of the book. But suffice to say, though, that I saw echoes of the early colony's inception and the sense that this sort of terror Australis was a lawless land for the strong and those willing to do what it took. Fig also hides in plain sight. So we have the, the telling of his story, the way he tells the story to people he encounters. It's as much about what's concealed as what's revealed. And, and violence for him is always deemed to be justified and necessary. And it, that really got me thinking of the role of violence and justifying violence in the in the early in the early settlement yes um, that's absolutely right i I tried to to depict fig as somebody who is perfectly honest about although he's an imposter in the first place he's perfectly honest about what his motives are and, and how he intends to go about things and um i thought of these three survivors as three ways of thinking about settlement um, that you have Srinivas, who we'll come to, who really looks at the landscape and its people with a kind of open-eyed curiosity and wonder and innocence. Um, and then you have Clark, who looks at those things with an eye to advantage. How can I turn this to profit? And then you have Fig, who looks at those things with utter ruthlessness that I can take any pleasure I want out of these elements. Um, and and those, to me, are three different aspects of what happened when settlement occurred. Um, so Fig is there really to depict the, the brutality at that end of the spectrum. Were there also, was there also a sense, I, I felt, um, of a parallel between Fig's role in the party and the role of the Rum Corps in the administration of the early settlement? Yeah, although I think, um, again, the Rum Corps, although they were bastards, they tended a bit more to the commercial end of the spectrum. They, they were there to make a profit and to establish themselves as a kind of petty aristocracy. Um, Fig is a sensualist. He's just there to take pleasures. And it's almost more than um, a greed for treasure that's, that's driving him. I was thinking of... There's that kind of archetype of um, almost satanic figures like Judge Holden in um, Blood Meridian, uh, more recently Henry Drax in The North Water, um, of a, a kind of Lucifer figure who attaches himself to some human endeavour, creates mayhem and then disappears out the other end of it again, um, almost as though to reset that process again in someone else's lives. And that was the way I imagined him passing through this party that, that he had, through some terrible misfortune, attached himself to them. Mm -hmm. And that um, he would go ab 
about his nefarious purposes and then somehow vanish again. Um, and, and, you know, it turns out that's quite an ancient archetype in, in storytelling. Mm. And so we come to Srinivas, and his, his story really emerges slowly. He's been canny enough throughout the expedition to hide his fluency in English. Uh, in fact, he's hidden his voice almost completely, uh, particularly for fear of, of consequence, um, that he, he, he knows that he is paying attention. So, his is the silenced voice. And as it emerges in the book, as he, he tells his tale to Charlotte Grayling, um, it's, a, it's a story that reveals horrors. And insofar as his is yet another subjective account, do you actually feel that these silenced voices as a part of Australia's history are something that we hear enough of? Um, that's exactly right. We, there must be multitudes of these voices that we simply have never heard from and that offer a far richer and more nuanced understanding of what went on. Um, if you've got this Lascar boy, who I've called Srinivas, um, who is lost to the record, then there are dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of such people, not only among Lascar sailors, but among the convict classes, among um, the Aboriginal people who were the owners of the land, um, among simply the unskilled classes of the settlers. None of those people had access to putting their mark on, on the record. Mm. So what we have is only a tiny fraction of what went on, delivered by people who often you know, had self-interest at heart. Um, the way that Srinivas is depicted in the actual historical record in Clark's diary is simply that one of the three survivors was a Bengali boy who was Clark's manservant. Mm. He's never given a name, and um, it, it seems reasonable to assume that it was assumed that he could not tell his own story. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting device, that mm. if... If, in fact, he understood very, very well what was going on, and if he could explain it to somebody, then he had a fascinating story to tell because often the very person who's overlooked, um, out of arrogance or whatever else, is the person who notices the most interesting things. I thought it was quite wonderful also that he tells his story, and his story is, is sought out by, by Charlotte Grayling, who, who has a, f a fantastic arc throughout preservation, but she would also have been traditionally someone who would not have had access to the means to tell their story, to record their story, and probably would not have had their story listened to because, yes. of, her sta because of her status as a woman in the, in the settlement. Yeah, I, I think if you look at the written record, what we have is accounts of what you might think of as convict prostitutes at one end of the scale, and at the other end of the scale, there is a handful of great women who are celebrated, people like Elizabeth MacArthur but that in between there were a great many women who just lived ordinary lives and um, we hear very, very little from them. And so to me, if you had somebody like Charlotte who is the wife of an officer, so there are kind of social expectations on her about the way she dresses and speaks and conducts herself, um, but who really chafes against that and has a different view of the world and is intelligent and perceptive and compassionate... Um, again, that, that would be a whole group of people who have been overlooked and who you can give voice to. Um, and aside from that, Charlotte sort of serves a role in the story because she's a sounding board for Grayling. Grayling sort of fumbles his way through his investigation 
and every now and then he turns to Charlotte and um, she's able to offer him a challenge and another perspective and um, I, I think that makes Grayling's job a little bit more interesting. Now, a narrative or narratives and a narrator or narrators <laughs> that we, we don't really hear from in the book but we're constantly skirting the edge of the story are the people of the nations that the parties come uh, come in contact with on their journey north, the Eora, uh, I- who are constantly referred to throughout the settlement, and we, we encounter their stories. And you've, we've problematized this idea of the subjective memory, uh, the subjectivity of memory, and its recording and the legitimacy we give to recorded documents. I liked in your author's note you took care to point out that the men and women of the various nations would have had a very different, would have probably had a different story to tell if only history had turned their gaze on them. Um, I wondered what what sensibilities and what concerns did you bring to your writing, and did you have have sort of on your shoulder as you were as you were creating preservation? Um, I thought about that a lot, and I worried about it all the way from the start. Um, and the, the funny thing about it is that there were so many great pleasures in the process of exploring that. And um, you know, I, I tried to speak to people who are responsible for that country and to understand um, what the sensitivities were and how to address them. Um, But in the process of doing that, I just had some great chats. And I remember speaking to a guy uh, from Bega who talked about... The sort of central mystery here is um, why did Aboriginal people assist these walkers and then at some stage spear them? Mm. Um, You know, what's gone wrong or what's changed? And um, the bloke I spoke to said, look, that's no mystery at all. In our oral storytelling tradition, we go all the way back to that incident and we know perfectly well why he was speared, um, which is someone else's story to tell. But if you look at it as the um, uh, the white written record, it appears to be a mystery when if you look at it as Indigenous storytelling, um, it all makes perfect sense. And, and that's one of the, the great pleasures of tr- looking at both sides of the story. Um, these people walked across two nations, which were the, the Gunai Kunai in East Gippsland and then um, the uh, Ewan in southern New South Wales. Among the Ewan nation, there's six or eight separate tribes, which, which would represent six or eight different language groups that they walked through. Yeah. And um, that means that they were constantly disorientated every time they thought they had got a handle on how to interact. Um, things would change on them again. And the other thing I think is worth keeping in mind is that this is a group of people trying to walk doggedly from south to north. There is no, um, there's no assumption you can make here that Aboriginal people travelled in that way. Mm-hmm. They may have travelled in completely different ways and people have done interesting research on um, what you might call the Aboriginal highways through those forests which um, represent trade routes, they represent ceremonial paths, um, and they don't at all represent this kind of linear passage from south to north. So I thought it was reasonable to to wonder about how it would have looked to those tribes to see these people crossing the land in the way they were. It probably wouldn't have made a lot of sense to them. Mm. You've you've touched there on something that I wanted to maybe close out our, our conversation on, and it's it's by no means a small topic, so we, um, it, we, we could still go for a little bit here, but uh, this idea that 
the country, this sort of legal, this legal principle that the country was terra nullius and that the people were uh, as engaging with the idea, uh, the, the, the popular ideas at the time, somehow noble savages. And then a quote from really early on in the book that I loved from, from Srinivas was, uh, he says, to be rich, I'd thought until then was a walled palace, but now I wondered if being rich meant not needing the wall. And all of these very clear markers of social and legal and civil constructs that the men, as they travel north, come in contact with, and the ways in which he sought to depict them. And the one that I made a note of, which is, it's it's so much just almost, it's almost like it was an afterthought to you, but it's so telling. Uh, they talk, I think it's Grayling is talking about the the brush burning that's going on around the Port Jackson settlement and how it's it's kind of being seen as acts of vandalism. And he he questions whether there is a sense that there is actually land management and that it has something to do with the the management and the season, which we now have so much better understanding of. And can you talk to me a little bit about and the way you wanted to depict those um, those emerging thoughts uh, on both sides in the in the settlement? Yeah, I, I was doing a lot of reading around that stuff as I went along, and um, there's some great books that have come out sort of in the last 10 years, that, particularly Dark Emu, Bruce Pascoe's book, but also um, The Biggest Estate on Earth, um, Paul Irish's book, there's Grace Caskins as The Colony, um, and they talk about that fire management and how understandings, as you say, are only really emerging now or only really being listened to now. They probably were there all along. Um, and, and how that changes the interpretation that you put on you know, those early experiences. Um, it's a difficult thing because you can research it and you want to be careful about putting it into an, a fictional narrative mm. in a way that it doesn't look too deliberate and show-offy. Mm. But I thought they were such interesting ideas. Um, and then as now... European Australians seem to struggle with the idea that, that Aboriginal Australia is such a great diversity of cultures, mm. you know, a multitude of cultures, not a monoculture. And, and clearly in the written record back then, that was something that wasn't well understood at all. So I've got Clark in the story talking about them and the, the way that he expects them to behave. Mm. And because behaviour keeps shifting on him, he gets frustrated, where Srinivas is better at picking the fact that they're moving through separate societies. Um, and, you know, that sense in Sydney of, of, the, of the sort of monocultural other out there in the bush mm. that was a threat to progress and civilization. Um, it's very, very apparent in everything you read. And... Um, it would have been hard to see through that and to see things like land management by fire, um, sustainable fishery. One of the reasons I put a scene in at the end of the canoes, the Nowies, on Sydney Harbour with the women in them fishing, was I thought it was such a beautiful image and it comes from a settler record. I can't remember who noted it, but there was somebody who in fact wrote down a passage about the women in their canoes with the little fires burning in them, um, fishing at night. And I thought it was such a lovely image. Um, but again, it, it contrasts so starkly against the settlers dragging nets through the water and there's this infamous record of them pulling 4,000 fish out of the harbour one day and they basically couldn't deal with all the fish and a lot of them rotted. 
um, and the Eora were horrified by this because they, they would delicately pluck fish one by one into their canoes at night. Um, there's such different ways of um, managing the landscape and thinking about it. Well, as I've, as I've said, as we've gone through looking at each of your narrators and then also looking at this this narrative that you you as a as a white person can only can only engage with as you said you can't speak for many of these stories you've still in preservation you've created this amazingly layered history that while fiction engages so much with the the conversations that we need to have about our past the past of invasion and settlement and the like i come back to you, your comment in your in your author's note of history turning its gaze on the people that have not been listened to in the past. And I wondered, do you have any thoughts, any hopes about the way that we can listen to the past and then perhaps come to terms and uh, between different tellers of history? Yeah, I, I think the opportunities are there. Um, I think that there's a great deal of um, Aboriginal stewardship of these stories and there are resources available to us and that it's it's not necessarily a matter of, of fantastic detective work um, it's a matter of being a little bit humble and um, doing some listening and the opportunities you know in coming years for people to open up the colonial narrative and, and really probe around in there and think more about some of this more fine-grained stuff, it's really promising. Um, this is not knowledge that's disappearing on us. It's knowledge that's opening up for us um, if we simply adopt the right mindset about that um, and not go steamrolling over the top of it all. Um, I think, you know, our better understanding of Aboriginal science and um, uh, Aboriginal knowledge of weather patterns is an example of that, that we're starting to understand that bowling up to a southern continent with European notions of four seasons was a, was a pretty crude approach and that there was a lot more to understand about that. Um, similar things apply with water management. I'm out here in southwest Victoria and we're learning over recent decades about this incredibly sophisticated system of aquaculture that went on um, in the inland uh, lake systems. And these kinds of understandings um, are there for us to embrace. And one of the reasons that writers need to go through the process of seeking consent and reading widely around what they're doing and thinking about appropriation is not um, to be prickly or defensive or you know, that terrible term... Um, politically correct or virtue signalling, it's none of those things. It's so much more about approaching the story from the right angle so that all of, all of this more subtle knowledge can open up for you as a storyteller. It's a positive. It's not a set of prohibitions. If you are curious about this thrilling tale that we have discussed, I am speaking with Jock Sarong and we are discussing preservation. It is his telling of the tale of survival from the wreck of the Sydney Cove in 1797. Jock, I want to thank you so much because you have indulged some wide questions from me there and you've really illuminated, uh, illuminated this fantastic book for me. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this great conversation with Jock Sarong. Jock's new novel, Preservation, is out now through text publishing. 
Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. And if you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, you can subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, and that means you'll get a new episode delivered straight to your phone every week. Don't forget you can also share this podcast with friends, give us a rating. It all helps to get the love of Australian books out there into the world. If you want to keep up with the latest books, writing, and literary culture, you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You know, all the usual places. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. See you then.